I want to welcome you to the last day of week four of our look through the book of Luke, chapter 20, chapter 16 to 20 this week, and we're focusing on chapter 20 today. In this chapter, we see Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem, his one-week ministry before he gives his life on the cross. And much of his ministry is what we see in this chapter, Jesus facing his critics head on. He faces their questions, he faces their traps, he faces their challenges, he faces them all. He faces their questions. In chapter 20, verse 1, one day as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? If we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. His critics had questions, but notice instead of answering their questions, Jesus instead revealed their motivations. Now, if only we could always do the same things. I don't always know the motivation of my critics. And you don't always know the motivation of those who are criticizing you, whether it's somebody in your family or whether it's a broader criticism that everybody else knows about. You don't know the motivation, but Jesus did. And so you can pray. Jesus, I don't understand the motivation, but I pray that it would be revealed. And Jesus had the wisdom not to go down the road of answering every question. You don't have to answer every question that somebody asks you. Sometimes, even though you're not God, you're not Jesus, you can figure out the motivation. If somebody's asking you a question in order to trap you, if somebody's asking you a question, but not for the answer, but because they want to be against you and they want to use that question as a leverage. This happens in business all the time. This happens in families all the time. So Jesus asked another question. And in that question, he pointed out their motivation. My encouragement to you when you're asked a question that seems to be more of an accusation is to pray. In that moment, say, Jesus, I don't understand the motivations here, but you do. And I pray that they would be made clear. There may be a situation where you need to pray that right now. After this question, Jesus clearly lays out the situation. He tells a long parable, which I'm not going to read here, a parable about a son who is rejected. A landowner has a vineyard. He goes away, and some others are brought in to take care of it. And every person that the landowner sends back to give a message to those who are taking care of the vineyard is killed. First the hirelings, and then the son. First the prophets, and then the son, Jesus Christ. The Pharisees get it. They totally understand what he's talking about. They know he's talking about them. They didn't understand most of his parables. They understood this one. There's no doubt they understood what he was talking about here. And so the Pharisees tried to trap him because of what has happened. The Pharisees send some spies to ask a question of Jesus. In verse 21, so the spies questioned him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right. And that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and he said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose portrait and inscription is on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him because of what he had said there in public. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. Now, notice what Jesus does here. 
Instead of getting trapped in their either-or thinking, either Caesar or God, what do we do, Jesus? Jesus talked instead about what I would call the God option. Instead of living under the burden of either-or rules, either you do this thing or that bad thing, there's a lot of people who love to offer you those kind of options. You're trapped either way. You live your life for the glory of God. Instead of getting stuck in the here and now, a lot of people want to trap you there. You look forward to an eternity with him. The glory of God and the eternity that we're going to spend with him, that gets you out of the traps, many of the traps that people try to set in life. These spies try to trap him. The rulers, they had questions for him. And then another group, a group by the name of Sadducees. There were the political party of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And without going way into the politics of it, the Pharisees were the more religious amongst them. The Sadducees were the more political amongst them, the more power-based amongst them. And the Sadducees then try to challenge him. By the way, the Sadducees didn't believe there was a resurrection of the dead. So they had questions of Jesus about it. In verse 27, some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, see if you can follow this, if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her, and in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her. Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in that resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Now you see what's going on here. These guys have figured out this awesome question that proves there can be no resurrection. Moses' law says this has to happen that a man's brother should take the wife of the brother who has died. What if it happened seven times? What if there were no children? Who's going to be married to who in heaven? Jesus says, you don't get it. There's not going to be marriage in heaven like there is on earth. Now, i got to admit, I don't get that. Marriage is the most wondrous relationship. It's not always wondrous, I understand that, but it is the most wondrous relationship we can have on this earth when it goes right. And I sure understand that. But in heaven... Relationships are going to be so much better, so much beyond that, we can't even fathom it. Jesus listens to their silly question, but he doesn't stop there. He goes on from this silly question to challenge their thinking about their resurrection. In verse 37, he says, but in the account of the bush, the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Jesus just simply says to these Sadducees, look, God says he's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He didn't say he was the God who used to be of Abraham. No, Abraham's still alive. Isaac's still alive. Jacob is still alive. These questions, these challenges, what do they mean for us? I mean, it's great that Jesus answered them well. It's awesome to watch and to be encouraged by the way he was able to face these challenges. But what do they mean for you? What do they mean for me? Jesus tells us at the end of the chapter, he uses this day, all that happened this day, to warn his disciples, to warn his followers, to warn you and I about religious pride. Verses 45 to 47. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. 
They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. The warning to me here is history is filled with stories of those who've been trapped by their religious pride. Now, if history is filled with something, I better take warning. And this religious pride attitude, they love to have flowing robes. They love to be greeted. They love to have the most important seats. I have to look good. I have to be noticed. I have to be important. That is religious pride. The point of this entire chapter is be a disciple, not a a Pharisee. It sounds so simple, but it is not always so simple. It is just easier to lean in the direction of self-importance and self-promotion and self-interest, especially when you see somebody else being advanced because of their self-importance and self-promotion. And it doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. Well, in this day, those who had the greatest religious pride were the greatest leaders. And Jesus says they will be most severely punished. Don't get caught up in what's happening just here and now. The danger of religious pride is great for me. It's great for you. And it can be done in a thousand little ways that grow into bigger ways. So let's talk to Jesus about it. Jesus, you see our hearts. You know us better than we know ourselves. And you know the little things that can trap us. The thing that was an enjoyment the first time, but then it becomes something that we expect the second time. The the notice that we felt like advanced your kingdom the first time, but that somehow we need to make ourselves feel important the second time. Or just the little thing that we got. A gift that somebody gave. A blessing that was given. Some money that met a need. The little gift that came into our lives. And we began, we began, Lord, to depend on ourselves or on the person who gave that rather than depending on you. Lord, there's so many ways to fall into this. But we are grateful together that there is a way to never fall into religious pride. And that is to humble ourselves at your feet. He who humbles himself will be exalted. To humble ourselves and realize, Jesus, it's all about you. It's all about following you. So help us not to get trapped by the trappings, but instead to decide once and for all, right here, right now, and then make that decision again the next hour and the next day and the next month and the next year. Jesus, here's what it's all about. I'm following you. I'm following you. Whatever happens, you have the words of life. I'm following you. In your name I pray. In your name I make this commitment. Amen. Next week, we look together at the two greatest moments in all of history, the cross and the resurrection. <laughs>